Hello, Bethel fandom. Thank you guys so much for being patient with me while I got this episode up. Um, I just had... I mean, you know how you have, like, a series of days where nothing is... Nothing is wrong in and of itself. Although yesterday kind of really fucking sucked for a whole number of different reasons. Um, today honestly hasn't been a huge amount better. I've just been playing Skyrim for the most of the day. Um, but anyway, I, I, had, I had like a series of just very blah days and it was very, very hard to work up the motivation to do this. And I feel shitty about that because like I have Patreon subscribers. <laughs> I, I, I mean to keep to a schedule and it's very important to me that I do that. It's, it's part of what keeps me actually doing this at all. So I feel bad about not getting this up on Monday the way I intended to do. But better late than never, I guess, and here I am, and you are here too at Keep Singing, a Bethel and Beth Green and Daryl Dixon podcast, and I'm your host, Sunny. Dynamic Symmetry on Tumblr and Twitter and many other places. And hi, I'm glad you could be with me today, or tonight, or this morning, or whenever the hell you're actually listening to this. I forgot afternoon. Afternoon's a time also. Anywho... This is the seventh episode in our reading series, so that's super cool. I love doing these. As we have been doing, we're going to have a chapter of Vampire Cats Burn. We're going to have a chapter of My Safe Up Here With You. And then we're going to have, at the end, a happy little one-shot called Conflagration by Head Trip Parade, which is just, just a kind of nice and slightly slightly, slightly angsty uh, ASC reunion scenario, which we always love those. Those are always nice. So there's that. I'm going to start out with Burn. I'm going to move on into Safe Up Here With You, and then I'm going to end with Conflagration. Uh, a note about Burn and Safe Up Here With You. Uh, both of those chapters, hella long. So in order to keep this under two hours, I went ahead and split them. So you're going to be hearing part one of both of those chapters, and I will pick up with part two of both of those in the next reading series episode. So doing that was part of a impetus to get me to actually go ahead and do this, because I looked at the chapter lengths and I was just like, oh my god, I just fucking can't. But yes, I did, and here it is. Uh, Before we jump into the actual fic, let me just go ahead and do my little Patreon spiel. If you like this, if you're enjoying it, if you would like to help me keep doing it, help me justify the amount of time I put into it, which is considerable, given especially that it's just me doing it all by myself, except for the guests that I have on. Um, First of all, the absolute best thing that you can do, and it costs you absolutely nothing, is to reblog it and tell people about it and otherwise spread the word about it. Because when more people listen to it, it makes me super happy. It's super great. And if you can support the show in a slightly more material way, if you can, absolutely cool. I understand we're all tightening our belts. It kind of sucks for a lot of us out there right now. But if you are a fortunate person who can afford to spread the wealth around a little bit, uh, it means a huge amount to me if you donate monthly to my Patreon, which is linked at the top of my Tumblr blog, uh, dynamicsymmetry.tumblr.com. And my Patreon is linked up at the top. And you click on that, and it takes you to Patreon, and if you want to toss like a couple bucks at me monthly, that's absolutely fantastic. If you don't want to do Patreon, you can go to the podcast's website at keepsingingpodcast.wordpress.com. There is a picture of the tip jar. You click on the picture of the tip jar. It takes you to PayPal, and you can also toss a couple bucks at me one time that way. 
and that is also fantastic. Uh, like I have said many times before, there are some out-of-pocket costs associated with this. Not much, it's, it's not, you know, breaking the bank or anything, but I do pay out-of-pocket to host this thing on SoundCloud, among other things, and doing that means that I don't ever have to delete any episodes, which I, I think is a nice thing to do. So yeah, you, you help me keep this going, you help justify the amount of time that I put into it, you just make me feel super appreciated and it's super nice. I'm very, very much into the patronage economy. I think that it's a good thing. So let me take a second to thank the people who are already supporting me on Patreon. Thank you so, so much to Ashley DeGroote, Aisha Bryant, Ambrosia Smith, Elise Erickson, and Rebecca Aguilera. Thank you guys so much. You are so great. I love you. And you know, I love you even if you're just listening and reblogging and telling people about it and stuff. I love everybody who listens. You're all great. And I hope you are all having an absolutely fantastic day. And I'm really tired. And after this, I'm going to go back and play more Skyrim. Yeah, so let's go ahead and get to the fic. So again, we're going to start with Burn. We're going to move on into Safe Up Here with you, and we're going to end with Conflagration. See you on the flip side. Burn by the Vampire Cat. Chapter 6 Creatures Great and Small. Part 1. Three weeks later, he stands outside, stamping his feet against the winter chill, and bellyaching to himself about bad choices and worse consequences. He's not really angry. Can't be, really, because this is his doing. Well, mostly his doing. Well, at least half his doing. Regardless, he can't remember the last time he was this cold. Not even when he was a kid and there'd been no money for gas and heat, and he'd cuddled next to his ma under a bunch of ratty blankets and hoped his old man wouldn't come home from whatever bender he was on at the time. Sometimes he even got his wish, and his ma would be sober, and she'd hold him and whisper to him and tell him he was a good boy, the best boy, the best thing she'd ever done, the boy that would make her proud and get away from this all. Most times she didn't know he was there. Most times she was too wasted to know much of anything. He shakes his head, tries to think of happier times. There ain't many, but there are some, a few. Nights spent in drafty houses with the group while Lori's belly grew big with Judith, and Maggie and Glenn fucked themselves to sleep just out of sight, but not out of earshot. Nights spent huddled around a campfire when none of the houses were safe and things were better outside than in. Nights when Beth would sing to lift their spirits, and walkers would wail and groan to drop them. Surely it must have been this cold then. He doesn't remember. He doesn't think so. Even the prison during the middle of winter, with its drafty passages and broken windows, wasn't as icy as this. He knows. He spent enough time in that guard tower, enough time patrolling the halls, enough time walking the fence to be sure. But this, this is different. This is the kind of cold that gets into your bones, that leeches your energy, saps your strength, and leaves you helpless. This ain't Georgia weather at all, and even if it means the walkers are slower, sluggish, duller, he's not sure it's worth it. Even the sheep isn't helping all that much, nor the layers of clothing he has underneath it, and all he really wants to do is get back inside the house, Lego Village or not, and snuggle down with Beth in the nest of pillows and blankets they made in the lounge. Instead, here he is outside, freezing his balls off. It's at least half his fault. He squints into the dimness and then looks back to the house. He can see the warm orange glow of the fire through the window, smoke curling out of the chimney, 
and he thinks it looks like some kind of fairy tale house. Like it just needs seven dwarves or to be made out of gingerbread or some shit. It feels out of place, out of time, out of reach. But it's not. And neither is she. Barely more than a few minutes ago, he'd been sitting on the lounge floor, back against the couch, with Beth snuggling against him, her head on his chest, her arms tucked firm and strong around his waist while her hair got caught on his lips as he told her about some or other shit Merle had pulled back in high school. He kept it light, tried to, at least. He ain't got many light stories. Even the happy ones are tainted, tinged with the grime of his existence, tinged with nights left cold, hungry and scared inside the filthy trailer known as home. He tries, though, tries to tell her about the time Merle set his shirt on fire, doesn't tell her it was Merle's only shirt, and he set it on fire because he was too methed out to know what he was doing. Tells her about the time his ma baked raisin bread that tasted like meat, but doesn't tell her it was because she was drunk and threw in some dice roadkill that she mistook for raisins. Doesn't tell her that he only tells himself it was a mistake, because maybe she wasn't drunk, and the roadkill was all she had to bulk up the meal. It's not that he thinks she'll judge. She won't. He knows that. You don't get to confess that you were nothing, nobody, a redneck asshole, and then find yourself out on a limb later because a pretty girl can't deal with the fact that your brother only had one shirt growing up, that anything you had were just his hand-me-downs. It just doesn't work that way. But it's not that. It's not a big deal that he had nothing before because the truth is that no one has anything now. Except maybe him. Maybe her. Maybe they have each other, and maybe that makes them rich in a way they never were. But it's not that. It's that he doesn't want her tainted, doesn't want to bring that shit into their house. Because it is their house. It's where goodness lives and dreams come true, and he'll be damned if he feels like a sap for admitting it. So he doesn't. He won't. He looks back at the door, and the cerulean flower box made a death purple in the shadows. She's inside, bundled up in a homespun quilt in front of the fire, while he stamps around in the freezing night air outside, being gallant and shit. He doesn't mind, though. Doesn't mind at all. But he wants to get back to her. Back to them. Wants to wrap her up in his arms, pull her close. Feel her breath against his cheek and neck as she reads to him from a dog-eared book she picked up off the shelf. She chooses a new one every few nights. Reads a couple of chapters before they go to bed. Some are great. Others, like the one they're reading now, less so. But he doesn't mind, because it ain't about the books. It ain't about the story. It's about her, and the way she'll lean against him or talk quietly in his ear, so that he has to bow his head to hear her, feel the slide of her flesh against his, the heat of her mouth close to his cheek, the way he can absently run his fingers through her long hair and watch her knit her brow and flush slightly as he does. It makes him feel important, connected. It makes him feel alive. He's not sure how it happens anymore, how they end up tangled in each other, how they gravitate toward each other, and how it seems so easy to just hold her and give in to this thing that exists between them, this thing that he finds himself admitting existed since the night Zack died. But he doesn't dwell on it, doesn't question it. She's his world now. He doesn't want anything else. She's feeling much better now, too, and that's good. Took ages, and luckily he somehow managed to avoid catching whatever she had, despite having his tongue so far down at throat he could have licked the sickness out. He shakes his head and stamps his feet again. He doesn't want to think about that. They don't talk about it. Not really. He still holds her every night, still lets her wind herself around him, still plants kisses in her hair. For her part, she still flirts with him. But she's gentle and safe, and he never feels that flush of shame when she does it. 
Some nights her hands snake under his cotton vest, rest on his hips or his belly, and he likes it, likes the gentle rub of her fingers over his stomach. It makes him feel strangely vulnerable, and yet protected at the same time. It's wolfish, submissive the way he lies there with her, belly and throat exposed, letting her burrow her way in, offering himself to her in a way she may never realize. He's okay with that, though, waiting until she claims him. He realizes now that this was the way to do it, realizes now that the only way to claim her was to let himself be claimed first. No, he doesn't like the terminology, too many bad memories and all that. But it's undeniable to him now that he's marked her as his. Marked her that day his golf club sent gore flying onto a pristine white cardigan. But it's equally undeniable that she's marked him, and his strange lupine submission is the way he shows her. There are other nights, though. Other nights that are worse. Because he'll find his hands on her, fingers rubbing slow circles into her flesh, tracing the line of her arm, her hip, her thigh. They don't talk about it in the morning. Hell, they don't talk about it while he's doing it. Don't talk about the way her skin chills and then prickles, the small gasps that escape her lips, the hardness of his erection, nor the scent of musk that lingers in the air between them. He finds he can't help it. He wants to, but he can't. And she doesn't want him to, doesn't want him to help it, doesn't want him to stop, sometimes holding his hands on her while he tries to jerk away, other times letting her lips ghost over his collarbones, his neck, his jaw, the same way he did that night he found her. That same way that made him feel like he was dying and drowning and burning all at once. They don't talk about it the same way they don't talk about the funeral home and the piano and the white trash brunch. The way they don't talk about, you know, the way they don't talk about, oh. They don't talk about it. Come on, he mutters, squinting into the darkness. It's even colder now and he's tired of waiting. They think it's only December. Beth tells him she's almost sure it's Christmas and even dug out a box of decorations and hung a porcelain Santa off the window frame. Added a string of silver tinsel, too, which she wound around some of the weird-ass paintings adorning the walls in the lounge. It looks cute. He tells her she's crazy, but he likes it. He likes it a lot, and he thinks she knows. And her Christmas cheer is contagious. Makes him want to do it right. Makes him want a celebration. Songs. Lights. Maybe a ham. He knows the ham is pushing it. And gifts. Gifts are important. He wonders if this time he's ever done it. Making up for lost time and all that. His old man had never given his ma anything after they married. Well, nothing but bruises and two frightened boys. She said so, once. Told him how Will Dixon proposed with a fake diamond and empty promises, and how she'd been too in love with him to see the deception in his words. Her family disowned her berated her for marrying beneath her, embarrassed that their prom queen college girl with a bright personality and even brighter future could bring such shame on them. She was dead to them. Apparently so were her children. And like every cliché in the book, like every bad movie and sob story, the way Will Dixon slipped his fake diamond onto Chloe Ann Latimer's finger, everything changed. He drank. He whored. He made his kids put soap in a sock, and there wasn't a day in his life that he ever gave a shit about any of them. He doesn't know why his ma told him this. Doesn't seem the kind of thing you should tell your kids, even if it's true. But his ma had never been one to hide anything from him and Merle. He's not sure if she was just that honest, or if the booze made it difficult to lie. Or maybe she was warning them, letting them know that they only had each other, that you can't rely on anyone for anything. She couldn't go back, and she couldn't stay. So she did what she could, and she stayed without being there. 
And he noticed one year, when he was old enough, but not yet bitter enough that his mind ever got anything for herself to enjoy. Never got a pretty dress or a necklace or something nice like he'd seen on the TV commercials before his old man sold the TV for drink money. So he tried. Managed to save up a few dimes here and there. Even watched a couple cars for a dollar or two. Went to the store and bought her some cheap candy, the best he could afford, and left it by her bed on Christmas morning. Only thing was, his old man was on a bender, had been gone for a long time, and his mom had been overindulging in cheap wine, spending her days alternating between drinking and vomiting and then drinking again. So Christmas passed by unnoticed, as did his chocolates. She never knew about them. Months later, he saw the box peeking out from under the bed, untouched, still in its newspaper wrapping with a long dead flower for decoration. He never said anything. His mom had enough guilt. She didn't need that, too. I'm sorry, Daryl, he hears her whisper. I'm sorry. He shakes his head, shakes her away. Shakes her out the way he's been shaking out Merle and his old man. Shakes her out like cobwebs. His mind needs a dusting, a spring cleaning. He thinks he's halfway there now that he can think about the presence without choking up or getting mad. Can think about the dead flower without the sting of rejection it represents. Can think about the things he misses that he never had. He guesses if there were shrinks in this new world, they'd call it progress. There ain't, though. So he settles for it being okay. Not great, not fixed, not wonderful, not healed. Just okay. That's good enough for now. He ain't his old man. He ain't moral. He's not on a bender. He's found gifts. For Beth. Forever, Beth. Gotta stay who you are, after all. He squints again into the night, making out a dark shape near the blood-red flower bed that graces the outside of house number four in this little Lego village they live in now. Come on, Bo, he says again, patting his thigh, and seconds later he hears the clicking of nails across the tarmac, and the amorphous blob solidifies into a pair of two big ears and four two big feet, all held together by the skinny frame of a black puppy. Yes, she has a dog. They have a dog. Yes, it's his job to take it out to pee. About damn time, he swears, ushering the puppy up the stairs. Should have left your ass out there. The dog woofs happily and thumps its tail as if it agrees before rushing past him and into the house the second he opens the door. He hears Beth's voice, low-pitched but giggly, and he knows the mud is busy licking her face and jumping on her. And he can't keep the grin from his voice when he calls he's going to check the gate one last time before he comes inside. And he can't stop smiling when she tells him not to be long, because the book is waiting, and she knows how much he's loving it. And he can't even bother to groan as he turns back toward the drive, because he'll read any goddamn thing with her if it's what she wants. He doesn't care if it's fucking Faulkner or a bunch of dried tea leaves. And the puppy barks, and Beth giggles, and he feels something that he could almost call contentment. It's funny how things work out sometimes. If the one-eyed dog was a sign of loss to come, then Bo, well, Bo was a sign of foolishness and recklessness and idiocy. He was an accident, a cosmic joke that neither of them really understood until after it had happened. And even then, Daryl couldn't get his head around just how completely and utterly foolish they were being, and had been already. He knew why, though. It was Beth, and he could never deny her anything. If Beth Green wanted a dog, Beth Green would get a dog, and pig's feet or not, he'd be damned if he let that opportunity slip through his fingers again. 
Existing ain't living, and neither is surviving. And since they were already living in a post-apocalyptic parody of suburban married life, a house, a crazy neighbor, a little car, well, a pet didn't seem too much of a far-fetched next step. He guesses it makes sense, in retrospect, anyway. It didn't at the time. They'd gone on a run. Supplies were running low because they'd started leaving food and the occasional item of warm clothing outside Bessie's house twice a week. They never saw her, never as much as glimpsed a moving curtain, but the food was always gone when they came back. He knew they were being dumb, knew that this world was all about keeping what you had, but neither of them could bring themselves to abandon her. Beth still wanted to go in, but he'd put his foot down. Well, no, that wasn't quite true. He was deluded if he thought the position of his nice big male feet would have had any impact on what Beth wanted to do. But he'd asked her not to. Asked her for him. Truth was, the idea of going into that house terrified him, but the thought of her being in there terrified him more. So he asked. For him. It was the first time in his life that he'd done that. And he hadn't expected it to work, the two of them standing there outside that house, arms laden with tins and jars, like twisted neighbors coming to welcome you to the neighborhood. But she'd nodded, nodded, and put the food on the porch, wrapped hard on the door and taken his hand in hers, and walked away, back to the car, planting a quick kiss on his cheek before sliding behind the wheel and waiting for him to gain enough of his faculties to follow her. It was Beth. It was always Beth. Regardless, their little brand of charity was costing them, and he wanted to stock up with as much as he could so as not to have to keep having to go on runs in the middle of winter. It wasted gas, but more importantly, it wasted time. And after the last time he'd gone off on his own, he didn't relish a repeat performance. Beth was right. It was too dangerous to be separated, and they needed to watch each other's backs. And it was hell for the person left waiting at home. Hell wondering if that's just it. The end. The last time for everything. Which is why he took her with him that icy winter morning when they were almost out of fuel and needed another car battery to keep the boiler running. Didn't figure it would be a long run, had seen a run-down tune-up center only a few miles up the road, and, barring a herd infestation, it really should have been an easy run. It was. First part, at least. It was when he tried to get fancy that things went pear-shaped. Yeah, Dixon, you fucking know what happens when things should be easy. The service center was old school. Large, but dingy and grimy even by New World standards. Whatever the fuck those were. They'd coughed at the surge of dust that met them at the door, and then gagged at the smell of a walker inside. Even now, he's still irrationally pleased that they can smell the fuckers, that the smell of rot isn't so much a part of them that they can't tell the difference between them and the dead. Reminds them that they're still human, still breathing. Not one of those things, walking the line between the realms. They ain't mindless. They ain't dead. They can live. They can hope. They can laugh, and maybe if they're the luckiest people on Earth and all the stars aligned, they can find some meaning, too. There wasn't much to see inside. A series of hoists and pulleys, a few battered desks and torn chairs strung around the edges, partitions of drywall and corrugated iron. Parts of prehistoric computers and chipped coffee mugs littered the floor, and pictures of big-breasted playboy centerfolds were stuck cruelly to the walls. It reminded him of the places where Merle would get odd jobs when he wasn't in juvie. A bunch of burly men sitting around complaining that their old ladies were too fat and their kids too naughty, and deluding themselves into believing that they had a chance with any high-heeled young blonde that walked in for an oil change. There would be the moment they changed, of course, when that hot blonde walked in. They'd stop their bellyaching about the extra pounds and the kids they never wanted and turn on the charm like a syrupy tap. 
make themselves out to be capable knights in oil-covered overalls, take charge, and promise to solve all her problems. And after she'd forced a laugh at their jokes, paid them, and driven off without a backwards glance, they'd revert back to their old selves. But now, instead of complaining about their wives and kids, they'd turn on the blonde, call her a cocktease, a slut, an uppity bitch she needed to get laid. Yeah, because she spent her whole life waiting for them. That was how it worked. These are the places he knows, the places he grew up in, the places he should call halfway home, but can't any longer. Because home ain't there. Home ain't a prison or a moonshine shack. It ain't even a funeral home or a terraced house with a blue flower pot outside. No, home is Beth. Beth is home, and he knows he'll follow her to the ends of the earth. And never look back, if that's what she asked. There was one walker inside. A man in blue coveralls dangling on a hoist. Another dumbass who tried to check out and only succeeded in becoming exactly what he wanted to avoid. Beth had made him take it down and kill it. Told him they needed to do it. Told him it wasn't inconceivable that someone without weapons would need to hole up in here one day. And then what? They'd either die or have to live with the hissing and the gurgling until the thing's neck rotted away and it fell. We're strong, Daryl, she said. We need to do this. We need to think ahead. So he lowered the hoist and stabbed the walker through the eye, and that was that. The end of it. The last walker they'd see that day, as far as he was concerned. He was wrong. So, so very wrong. Regardless, that part of the run couldn't have been smoother. They found three working batteries, easily enough gas to last the winter, and a stash of junk food and a dusty old vending machine. It was a good day. A really good day. But then he'd gone and got sappy. Should have remembered the last time. Should have remembered what happens when he tries to get things for Beth Green. When he tries to make things good. Make things right. She was humming gently as she helped him stock the car. The tune he recognized when his ma used to sing to him when she was sober. When she wasn't weeping into a bottle. He couldn't place it. And when he'd knelt down to pick up the last battery, he'd caught sight of a loose lock of hair from her ponytail. Watched how it trailed against her cheek curling under her chin. And all he wanted to do was run his finger down her face and fix it behind her ear. She must have felt him looking at her because she chose that moment to glance up at him, her eyes big and blue and wonderful. A faint blush rose on her cheeks and she smiled, looking away while she hoisted her cargo up and walked to the car. Quickly, he'd taken the battery from her and dumped it in the trunk. All right, she asked as he closed the hatch. "Uh Uh-huh, let's get out of here. She nodded, and that piece of hair bounced back across her face, and he couldn't stop himself reaching out and tucking it behind her ear, fingertips ghosting across her skin, and lingering on her temple for just a moment too long. Just a moment. But it was enough. Her eyes met his, clear and blue, and it felt like she was reading his mind and seeing his thoughts. And he told himself to jerk his hand away, stop this nonsense, and finish up with what they were doing. But she turned her face into his palm letting him cup her cheek with his roughened hand, before placing a small kiss on his skin, fingers lingering against the faintest hint of wetness. And had it been anywhere else, anywhere but a seedy garage with pictures of bare-breasted women stuck up on the walls, he would have kissed her, kissed her hard like he had when she was sick, backed her into the drywall, run his hands down her sides, along that flare of her hips, across the curve of her ass. He could still taste her in the back of his mouth, still imagine the cool smoothness of her skin under his hands, remember the way she tangled herself around him, and the way he never wanted her to let him go, 
but not there. Not there in a place where the smell of diesel and rot permeated the air and the gaze of sultry women dared him even as they egged him on. Ain't decent. Ain't right. Instead, he'd rubbed his thumb across her cheekbone and trailed his fingers along her jaw and down her neck to her shoulder. Ready, he asked. And the way she'd nodded told him she was answering a different question. Told him she'd been ready since the night he found her. Maybe even before. Told him he was the one who needed to answer that question. That his answer was more ambiguous than hers. And he thought to himself that his answer was out there already, waiting for the universe to acknowledge it. And he wondered how she couldn't know. But he didn't ask. Because you don't ask Beth Green if she loves you, if she wants you. You don't ask. Ain't decent. Ain't right. He'd asked her about the song, though, the one she was humming. That was okay. That was safe. Called Hallelujah, she told him as she buckled her seatbelt. It's nice, he said, throwing his arm across her seat and reversing out into the road, swerving to avoid a lone walker. One that hadn't been there when they'd arrived. He wonders now if it was a sign of things to come. Yeah, it's a good song. Nice when you can put it to music. Mama used to sing it, he told her. Didn't know why he was bringing it up. It wasn't important. Didn't need to bring that into his life. This life with her. Didn't need that shit again. Sing it after my old man. He shrugged and made a vague gesture that could have meant anything, and somehow he didn't need to say more. She'd frowned, brows knitting across her pretty face, and he'd got the feeling that he was missing something, that she was trying to tell him something she didn't have words for. It made him feel naked, like she could see everything, and like it all mattered, even when it didn't. I'll sing something else, she offered. No, it's all right, he said, leaning across to touch her hand letting his fingers stray across her wrist. It's a nice song. I like it when you sing it. He wanted to say that it didn't hurt when she sang it, that somehow her voice, her clear, sweet voice, cleaned it and purified it in a way the cigarette smoke rasp of his ma's didn't, that somehow it made him feel better instead of worse and made him believe that things don't always need to be shitty. But he hadn't. Even so, she'd smiled, genuine, radiant, beautiful, and sang. I've heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord, but you don't really care for music, do you? And that's when he turned into a lovesick sap, swinging the car around and heading back the way they'd come, back past the garage and towards the town center. When she'd asked where they were going, he told her that he had a surprise for her, something she'd like. Something she could use for her singing. I thought my singing annoyed you. No, my girl. Nothing could be further from the truth. He'd noticed the music shop when they just moved in. House number seven, the one with the blue flower pot. They'd been out looking for a gas station, and he'd noticed a pokey-looking store wedged between a long-abandoned cafe and newsagent. It was one of those bespoke outlets for rich folk who got into their brains to pay thousands of dollars for embossed violins or marble pianos, or whatever the fuck took their fancy on any given day. The type of places he didn't even know existed until he was too old and too bitter to be awed by them. The type of place that left him empty. He glanced over to Beth, who was still singing softly while she stared out of the window, at the way her hair curled down her back, at the red tips of her ears, and the realization that he'd never feel empty again hit him like a punch in the gut. 
so hard that for a second he imagined he couldn't breathe, let alone see or think or feel, like it was the only feeling in the world, and it kept him tethered even as it compelled him to float away, far away until he reached the stars and could move among them as if he belonged. You do belong, Daryl, his ma whispered. You do. And he did. He knew it. No, it wasn't some kind of destiny, some kind of predetermined mess he'd gotten himself into, some kind of fate that existed only in stupid romance novels and stupider TV shows. It wasn't like that. It was like knowing your own name or how to walk, something profound and yet incidental. He belonged with Beth. Emptiness is impossible when your heart is so full. He stopped the car across the street, killing the engine so as not to attract walkers with the sound. He needn't have bothered. The area was dead, and he laughed silently at his own joke. An ornate but broken sign hung over the entrance with the words Music of Note carved into it, and he couldn't decide what was worse, the fact that the name was so bad or the fact that the shop's very existence felt like a mockery of everything in the old world and the new. He found he didn't care. It wasn't like they were coming back here anyways. Get in, get out. That was the mantra. Don't waste time. Don't take unnecessary risks, and sure as hell don't take any chances. Yeah, that didn't work out too well. You coming? he asked, and she nodded, sliding out of the car, slinging her backpack over her shoulder and stamping her feet against the cold, the tip of her nose already turning red in the icy air. They were in for a hell of a winter. Saw this a while back, when I... he started, but when her hand slipped into his, he lost his train of thought, and was powerless to do anything but tighten his fingers around hers, and let her lean against him. Is it like this? he wondered. Is it always like this? Could it be? In his head, his ma said yes, and his old man said no, and Merle just laughed like a drain and went silent. He ignored them all. They could hear a walker inside the shop, but it sounded like it was coming from a storeroom in the back, throwing itself against the door or walls with frustrated groans and grunts. He wondered what had it so riled up, wondered if it could smell them or something. He wasn't sure. He hadn't paid that much attention to the CDC asshole when he started talking about the dead, and he didn't think he knew anything either way. But still, he wondered, like he wondered about that family they saw that night they escaped Joe. The night Beth put a knife through Len's eye and another through Dan's chin. He tries not to think of that often, tries to put it from his mind, because when he does, all he can think of is everything that could have gone wrong, and how the fact that they're both still alive and standing with only one or two scars to show for it goes against every law of this new land. He ain't much of a believer, not like his ma. His ma and her Sunday best all dolled up for church, a cheap pale pink suit and a white blouse ripped and stained with blood from her mouth, mascara so black and running down her face so that you couldn't see where it ended and the bruise started. He ain't a believer, but that night, that night, brought him one step closer. The shop was trashed, like most places lately, whether from scavengers or walkers was immaterial. Sometimes the dividing line ain't real clear these days. The floor was covered in a mess of torn wet flyers about a ladies' night gig at some bar in town, and the windows were smashed, glass crunching under their feet as they walked. It didn't look like much, not much at all as they picked their way through the debris, a fanciful joyride that would just waste fuel and leave them disappointed. It was a mess, and everything was broken, keyboards smashed on the floor, dented saxophones in the corner, 
sheet music crumpled in amongst the flyers. It didn't look like much. But there they were. Three dusty guitars fixed high to the wall, well out of the way of the paper and glass carnage below. And when Beth saw them and understood why they were there, her face lit up, and she flung herself into his arms so hard that he had to take a few steps backwards to keep his balance. Thank you, thank you, thank you, she said over and over again into his neck, and when she pulled back and he saw that there were tears shimmering in her eyes, he decided that, yes, it could always be like this. It would always be like this, and Merle and his old man be damned. He wasn't them. He was different. And his girl was radiant. And he was okay with calling her his girl. She chose the Taylor sunburst, something or other, that he didn't understand. He didn't know what made it different from the other two. Didn't know why it was better or worse, or what she planned to do with it that she couldn't do with the others. She explained it to him as he stood on a rickety stepladder trying to get it down. Said something about the auditorium body size and the neck and how it would be easy to tune. He didn't comment. He didn't know, but he didn't care. If she wanted that guitar and planned to run away and become a post-apocalyptic rock star, he would have been down with it and followed her. And she kissed his cheek as he gave it to her. And he felt it all the way down to his toes. She was already trying to tune the damn thing before they were walking out the shop, and in his head he was already listening to her sing hallelujah while she played. He was already picturing them at home, in the lounge, on the couch, drinking god-awful instant coffee that tasted like dishwater with no milk and hearing her voice in his head. She was singing like she had in the prison, but this time it was just for him, and he didn't need to hide how much it touched him. And that's why, when he heard the sharp, high yelp coming from the back room where he'd heard the walker, his first instinct was to leave it, forget it, and pretend it never happened. But then he heard it again, and Beth stopped, and he stopped, and, as one, they turned around and stared back into the dusty shop. And there it was again, high, stressed, frightened. Daryl, she began, and he put up a hand to silence her. Stay back, he told her, as he stepped back into the gloom and the shadows and the dust. But Daryl, you said there was a dog. And he knew he shouldn't as he edged his way past the cashier's desk, down the narrow passage that led to the storeroom. He knew they should just forget it and get in the car and drive back. Knew he was asking for trouble. And that, at the end of the day, this would not be worth it. But there was something in those high-pitched cries, those sad whimpers that went into his bones and his guts and lodged itself there like a gift and a curse and a need he could never shake. He was never good with leaving helpless things behind, never good with only looking out for number one. He always needed something to save. More often than not, it was himself. The cries were getting higher and the hisses and grunts louder as he got to the storeroom. Something was throwing itself at the door, something big something wet and rotten. Don't do this, Daryl, his ma said. You got what you came for. Now go home. I don't know, answered Merle. Your girl wanted a dog. You don't even know it is a dog. He shut them off, let them duke it out another time. He knows it's dumb. He knows it's stupid. But... But... But Daryl, you said there was a dog. He didn't need to look to know she was behind him his knife in one hand, lens gun on her hip. She never could listen, never could stay. Told you to stay back. But Daryl... She was ready, though. 
No longer that flush-faced minstrel she'd been seconds before when it seemed like a guitar and a song were all she needed for the rest of her days, when it seemed the same for him too. She was Beth the warrior, Beth who can and will do anything. He didn't bother to tell her to go back, wasn't any point. Just nodded at her to open the door on his count. And as he raised the bow, the yelps getting louder and higher, he counted down on his fingers. Three, two, one. And she pulled the door wide, and the world took a breath, and held it forever. Safe Up Here With You, by Dynamic Symmetry. Chapter 7. In a Fire Now We Will Go. Part 1. He stands and watches her, but once again he doesn't go out to her. It's a cool morning. A little gray, overhead, not on the horizon. A high shelf of cloud, the trajectory of which is difficult to determine. It doesn't seem like it matters much, and as he stands at the door to the deck, still shirtless, still blinking owlishly in the beginnings of the light, he feels the numbness from the night before lingering. He doesn't want it, that essential lack of feeling, even though he senses he might need it. What's coming next, it might be fine. Everything has been swinging wildly back and forth between mostly fine and completely terrible, and there's no hard evidence to make him assume today will be one or the other. Probably it'll be both. But there's no reason to assume immediate terribleness. After she did this, she seemed happier. Both times. He watches her all lit up. That same quality of pristine coldness. Something impossibly distant. Impossibly separate. Unreachable. You don't try to save a statue. You don't try to save a dead girl. Unless you're as insane as she is. He turns and begins to make his plodding way toward the bathroom, planning ahead to breakfast, canned pineapple and oranges, and scanning his own interior for anything to grip and hold on to. Yesterday doesn't seem real, and he doesn't think it's just the numbness. None of what happened, what he can remember, and a lot of it is weirdly hazy, dreamlike, makes any sense to him now. The deer, the walker, the deer again, her soaked in blood, eating, feeding, Washing her after. Her washing herself. Her breast, her hard little nipple peaked in the firelight. That last shivers through him and he shoves it violently away. That was... Everything was strange. It was a moment, it's over. There's no point. Looking at himself in the mirror, and the colorless light pushing its way through the frosted glass window. From downstairs he can hear the slide of the door, though her bare feet are silent against the hardwood, at least from where he is. He listens anyway. One of the steps creaks, and he'll hear it if she's coming up to him. And if she does. He braces his hands on the edge of the sink and stares into his own eyes, half obscured by his hair. They look sunken. His cheeks are hollow. He's pale, and the lines are standing out on his face just as dark and sharp as her scars. He looks old. He feels old. 
If she came up here. If she tried something. Last night she was docile. She was easy. Again, he thinks about that, about how she very possibly would have done just about anything he told her to do. That by giving way a little, letting her have what she wanted, or at least not resisting her or trying to stop her when she took it anyway, he got what he wanted. Or at least as close to it as he's likely to get right now. You gave her a treat, and she was good for you. He glances down. He's gripping the porcelain so hard the blood has been forced almost entirely out of his hands. They look like dead hands. Fresh walker hands that haven't yet started to rot. He doesn't want this. He closes his eyes, sets his jaw until it aches. He's going to be good to her today. He's going to try. He's going to trust her as much as possible. He's not going to treat her like a fucking child. She's not a child. She's still Beth. In terms of her behavior, she might indeed be presenting herself as something between a sweet, sad little girl and a spiteful little girl and a monster, but she's still Beth. She's broken, but she's still Beth. And she's not gone. If she came up here to him, he would turn her and touch her shoulder, lead her back downstairs and do what he's going to do anyway. He'd put food in front of her and make sure she eats it. Make sure she washes up, gets dressed, and yes, these are things he would do for a child, but he won't fucking think of her that way. She's Beth. Nothing he could do for her can change that. Nothing he can do with her. He's not that powerful. Nothing he could do to her. He pulls his shirt on, throws some water at his face, goes back down. She's walking along the bookshelves, running a hand over the things on them. Books, the sculptures, the vases and figurines. There are now a bunch of very noticeable gaps where more of them used to be. At some point, probably not very long from now, she's going to run out. What then? Where will she go for her pretty little things to destroy? This is assuming they'll be here long enough for that to be a problem. Which he is, he realizes as he does it. He's assuming exactly that. He genuinely believed this might take only a few days. He was that fucking naive. Thought he was that powerful. He could bring her up here and she would be with him alone, like it was, and she would remember. He could bring her up here and have her all to yourself. Couldn't you? He clears his throat and she turns around. Her eyes are dreamy, not entirely alert, but it's better than it has been. She's focused on him. She sees him. And she smiles, just a small flash of her teeth, crooked in the front. Somehow that tiny detail always caught his attention, always drew him. He sees it now, and it's like the whine of a mosquito in his ear. Teeth on his throat, jerking, tearing, ripping. Blood flooding his mouth, his sinuses. Arching and making it run up his face to burn hot in his eyes. World full of blood. It was a home she made for the both of them. She runs an absent hand through her tousled hair, as if she's trying to push and pull it back into some kind of order. And maybe she is. Could very well be. He can let himself believe that. It's not a huge risk if he's wrong. She always took care of her hair, even on the bad days, if she could. Combed it out with her fingers. Worked out the most egregious tangles. Pulled it back, braided it, and it hits him all over again that it's pretty much too short to braid the way she did, and will be for a while. If she worked a braid into it, it would be nothing like it was. Hi, she cocks her head slightly, frowning. It tugs at the long scar on her brow. You all right? Um. He clears his throat again and twitches his gaze away from her. 
to the shelf behind her, to a gray ceramic thing that looks vaguely like a giraffe, to the standing lamp a little way to her right, to the sofa, that ugly coffee table, to anything but her. Yeah, I'm fine. Okay. Suddenly she's moving toward him, smooth, quiet strides over the area rug, her expression clearing. Once again, she has that look of dim, flat contentment. Gotten what she wants. Gotten her way. So how long does this last? What might he be willing to do in order to keep it going? She stops in front of him. Not close. Hands at her sides, head tilted up to meet his gaze, and she's glowing. She's actually just about literally glowing, as if she soaked up the young sunlight when she was out in it going through her little ritual. As if last night, kneeling in front of the fire, she soaked that in too. Before all this, alone with her, it seemed to him that she always had light around her, that somehow she attracted it even on darker days. But every time he wrote it off as his imagination, he wasn't doing well then. It wasn't by any means impossible that he might see hints of things that weren't there, even after... He had reasons for seeing that then, too. But he'd swear it's real. Swear it's there. Cheeks flushed, the skin of her neck and bare arms creamy. Her hair. He swallows. It's like a stone going down his throat. What's for breakfast? I'll get it. She tilts her head again. Little bird. I can help. Nothing to help with. It's just cans. I want to do more. She was glowing. Now her face is darkening. Not much, but he doesn't mistake it. Storm clouds, not here yet, but threatening on the horizon. Why aren't you letting me do anything? I'm not a kid. He could brush her off, or try. But she's Beth, even if she sounds like a sullen child. And he lurches to his very core as he goes ahead and says it. You're sick. She blinks at him, the clouds broken up and blown momentarily away by the force of her confusion. I feel fine. You keep thinking you're dead. You ain't fine. Just like that, the clouds roll back in, crash in, bringing thunder, and her face twists, reddens, lips pulling back from her teeth. Little bird, little beast, not a walker. Walkers moan and groan and hiss, but they don't snarl, and their eyes don't blaze, which isn't hyperbole. That eerie glow is surging brighter, not sunlight, but the volcano of madness rumbling inside her. He stands there and plants his feet. He can't be ready for this, but he's going to try. After yesterday, he can. He can take something awful, something that should be unbearable, and he can bear it. He can. If she's a storm, he can bend and not break under her. Everything in him is going cold again. He's expecting an outburst. He's expecting her to hiss at him, let that spiteful girl out to play with him, maybe just attack him, come at him with her claws and her teeth. But she does none of those things, and he was right. He can't be ready. Because all she does is step closer and reach up, lay her fingers against his lips. Like when he gave her back her knife and she touched his face, they're cool, smooth. They burrow under his skin and tie up his nerves, and the outline of the bruise he left on her wrist blooms dark in his vision like threatening unconsciousness. You have my blood on you, she says softly, and that's when he knows. There's no other way, nothing else to explain it. Edwards never would have told her something like that, even if he had noticed. No one else would she remembers. He was sure she was dead, but she was alive enough to see it. There was enough of her left to remember. Right here, on your mouth. Gentle, relentless. The storm is gone again. There's nothing on her face now but beautiful, pitiless calm. Maybe I was turning already. 
Maybe that's how I saw it. I was confused. Everything was spinning around. Nothing was the right shape. He can't move. She's pinned him with a touch. Is he bending? He doesn't know anymore. This isn't a gale. This is something so much worse, and he could never have expected this. But he should have expected something he would be completely unable to deal with. And he could tell her that she couldn't have been turning anyway, that she was shot in the fucking head, but he already knows that won't help. Won't do a damn thing. She's smart. Very. She can think around any argument he can throw at her, and she can just ignore the rest. She's always been so sure of herself. Everything was screaming. Even softer. Barely a whisper. She's close enough that he can feel her breath on his neck. Warm puffs of air. So alive. Jesus fucking Christ, she's the most alive thing he's ever seen. I always wondered what turning was like. Maybe I bit you. Her fingers are moving, sliding from his mouth down to his chin, through the scruff there, along his jaw, and dipping into the hollow of his throat. Right here. Maybe that's how it happened. He can see flecks of green in her eyes. She turns her head and the sun catches her, turns her hair to corn silk strands and lights up every color in her irises. Gold now. Violet. Her eyes look like opals. She fixes her gaze on her hand, on where it is, almost frowning, deeply thoughtful. And this isn't Beth. He doesn't know who this is. She hooks her fingers, digs her nails into the skin over his carotid artery. He sucks in a breath and doesn't move, and the truth lurking inside it crashes in on him like a wave. He doesn't want to. Maybe I killed them all, she whispers. I couldn't go to heaven after that. I couldn't be with Daddy and Mama and Sean. Maybe I killed them, and I didn't let them turn. But you turned. You would. You'd turn, and you'd be with me. You'd want to, wouldn't you? Beth. He's just mouthing the word. There's no voice behind it, no air. Every time he breathes, those hard little edges dig in deeper. We're together again. Just us. You said we'd stick around. You didn't want to find the others. You didn't want that at all. Nothing else. She's silent, staring at him, breath caressing his skin. He could tear himself back. He could shove her away. Of course he doesn't. Of course he won't. His eyes half close, and almost imperceptibly his head tilts back, and he gives her more of himself. Offers. It's that thrumming, buzzing numbness. A feeling like the blow of a hammer through a pillow. That right now, like this, he might not have anything left to lose. Which is insane. He has everything left to lose. He has so much more to lose than he did two weeks ago. Yet here he is. At last she nods, confirming something to herself. And before he can even hope to process what she's doing, she lifts up on her toes and presses a kiss to his cheek. Slow. It lingers. I get it now, she breathes. Lays a hand on his chest and uses it to push herself away. Steps past him and heads for the kitchen without looking back, leaving him standing, gazing blankly at nothing. At the space where she was, like he can't comprehend how she came to be there, and now he can't hope to comprehend her absence. Behind him, he hears the clink of her getting bowls. Silverware. Yes. She's not the only one who got what she wanted. He lets her get the bowls. Really, it's not even a matter of anything he does or doesn't allow. By the time he manages to turn and go to her, she set them out on the counter. But she's there in front of them, unmoving, 
and when he stops at her side and looks at her, her frown is heavy with consternation. It might just be that she's not sure where the cans are, but they're behind her and to the right. She must have seen them before now. She's standing here like this, motionless and confused, because she genuinely doesn't know what comes next. It pierces him when it arrives. He told himself he wasn't going to think of her like a child, but what he was planning to do to feed her that's exactly what it would have been. Now he has a chance to re-examine it. Perhaps do something different. He touches her shoulder again, lays a hand over it. Light, careful. When he speaks, he keeps his voice low and smooth. Soothing. I was going to crack open the pineapples and oranges. He pauses, gives her shoulder a little squeeze. He can feel the bones too sharply under his palm, ridges pressing into him. Can you get them for me? She still isn't moving, but he can feel her muscles shifting, can feel that she feels him, is reacting, and as with everything else, it's something. What she just said, what she just did to him, it doesn't matter, and that's another thing he's coming to realize. He really will take anything. He'll take it, and he'll put it away, because there's nothing else now but her. She's going to keep trying to hurt him, and she's going to keep hurting him without trying, and he can give up, or he can stand and take it pineapples? She echoes him so softly, barely more than a whisper. She sounds bewildered, nothing like the gently relentless keenness of before. Cans. His other hand finds her shoulder, rests there. It rises and falls as she breathes. He wanted to do something. That's something you can do for me. Nothing. Then, slowly, she pulls away from him and steps around, past. He turns to follow her progress, and he's half certain that she's just going to wander away, but she goes straight for the stockpile on the counter and picks up the cans, the right ones, and brings them to him, holds them out, meeting his eyes without wavering. He takes them from her. There's a tiny thing, what she's done, what she just did for him. On the face of it, it's not even all that different from other things she's done since they got here. She might not be able to function well, but she's made it clear that for the slim majority of the time, she can function. But he asked her to do something for him, and she did it. He didn't trick her into it. He didn't manipulate her. He didn't make her think it was something it wasn't. He asked her, and she did. She tried. She's been trying. Under the cloud of the other things that have happened, that she's done, he almost lost sight of that. Thanks, he says quietly. Yesterday was awful. But that was yesterday. Today might be better. It really might. Maybe he can do something. She's almost done with her steady mechanical eating when she stops, spoon full of syrupy orange and halfway to her mouth, and looks at him. What happened to the deer? He looks back at her, and while his stomach doesn't quite sink, it becomes noticeably heavier. Everything does, and it's pure resignation. She remembers, of course she would want to know. She might be content to eat what he's giving her, at least for now, but she wanted fresh meat, fresh blood, and having it made her happy. A treacherous part of him, sluggish and dragging itself through the dark, regrets what he did with it, even if today it wouldn't be nearly as fresh and might not do much to satisfy her. Got taken. And if she's asking, she didn't see it on the rocks below when she was performing her morning sacrifices. Or she saw it, but she didn't understand what she was seeing. Guess I didn't hide it well enough. Oh, 
She looks disappointed, but indistinctly so. He can't see any sign of anger, any sign of frustration that might turn verbally or physically violent. She frowns at her bowl, her spoon, and her hand, then brightens as something seems to occur to her. That's all right. We can go hunt. We can get more. And that's when he knows he's trapped. He sets something loose that he's not going to be able to contain. He sets something up and he's not going to be able to get out of it. She has a taste for it now. And she's not going to just forget. And sooner or later she's going to stop putting up with excuses. She's gone back to eating, spooning the last of it into her mouth. Watching her, he thinks of footage he once saw on some TV show or other of a Japanese robot building a car. Her lips are shining and sticky with syrup, and a drop of it has escaped and trickled down to her chin. It looks like a tiny, dully glistening gemstone. Her chin dripping with blood. Her ruby smile. If he doesn't give her what she wants, she'll find a way. But he's not going to leave it at the meat and the blood, at that way of reaching her. She's Beth. She's given him glimpses of what he's trying to find when he really got down to it and treated her like Beth. And he has to keep doing that. That's the one way that shows any promise at all. He can do something. It might be stupid, might be crazy, especially after yesterday, but so is literally everything else he's done, and so is being up here at all. There's really nothing he could do that isn't. So as he sits on his bed and pulls on his boots, his attention strays to her and locks there, unable to get free. Locked on her shoulders, her back, her hands pressed against the glass at the front of the room, and the opalescent eyes he can't see, but which he knows are staring out at purple-blue-green peaks and valleys, all drenched in late-morning sun. The sun that outlines her body, folds her against itself. This is going to be a pain in the ass. But he actually feels pretty good about it. She has her knife, and she's demonstrated that she remembers how it works. And if he returns to her gnawing on another animal, there are plenty of worse things he could find. He stands and shoulders the crossbow. I'm going on a run. She glances over her shoulder, but doesn't face him. When she speaks, her voice is level, but not flat. Alone? Yeah. His fingers wriggle briefly at the empty air, as if they need to grab something and hold on. But to the extent that he can, he's going to be honest with her. Like yesterday. I'll get in and out quicker if it's just me. And it'd be good if someone was here to watch the place. Which isn't a lie. They would be good, provided she can protect herself. Provided she understands that she needs to. She shrugs, still not turning. Sit yourself. All right. He looks toward the door, almost starts toward it, then stops. Treating her like Beth. Not like she's fragile. Not like he has to watch every fucking thing he says. She was always straight with him, blunt like a punch even when she was soft about it. Harder with the truth than he ever was. She never treated him like a child. She had expectations of him. He's not going to insult her now. You going to do anything to yourself? What? But she knows what. He can hear it. She knows, and she's asking because she wants him to specify, and he can't tell why she wants that. And while it doesn't actually go so far as to worry him, he's not fond of it. He can almost trust her, but he's not going to be able to fully trust her until she's well. You gonna hurt yourself? He pauses and then pushes on, jaw tense and hoping she won't notice. Yesterday you told me you were gonna if I didn't take you along. I need to know you're not gonna do that. She does turn, finally, and crosses her arms under her breasts. She's changed and she's wearing a different pair of jeans. 
He only managed to bring her two, and he's not sure she can wear the bloody one now. And a top which, he knows with a jolt, is almost the exact same shade of yellow as... He can't read her face. Some of it is the light, some the distance, some just that he can't. But she shakes her head, and he doesn't sense any dishonesty in it. Before this, she never lied to him. Not once. All right. Still he hesitates, studying her, and now she's studying him right back. Not defiant, and not aggressive in any way he can see. She's just searching him, and he has no idea what she's looking for. I'm going to get you some stuff, he says. No manipulation whatsoever. This is his sole reason for going, and it's yet another reason why he wants her to stay. And it's a reason he likes. I want it to be a surprise. Oh. And she smiles. It's tiny. At first he thinks it might be his imagination. It's sure it is. Sure it's wishful thinking. Sure that he is, as she said, merely seeing what he wants to see, and he does want to see this so bad. So fucking bad. Before, all that time before, he came to understand, in the midst of doing it, that he was trying to make her smile. Even in the shack, before the moonshine, talking to her about his father, his fucking father, and somehow erasing the horrible things and just making it funny in kind of a pathetic way. Making it a joke. Seeing her smile. All that crying she'd been doing, all that sadness, how he hated seeing it and he couldn't do anything. And then she smiled, and it was because of him. And it reached into him through his eyes and sparked down the tangled cord of his spine and wound itself around his heart. He made her smile. He couldn't imagine ever getting tired of doing that. And then she was gone, and he knew he was never going to get to see that smile again. But here she is. And he shouldn't be sure, because he can't be sure. It's so dangerous to be sure now, but he is. He's sure that he'll leave, and he'll come back, and she'll be all right, and she'll be waiting for him. I'll come back soon, he says, and he goes for the door, walks out, and inside he's feeling the closest thing to peace he thinks he's felt in. He doesn't know anymore. As he goes to the bike, he doesn't even notice the long, dried smear of blood. He just steps over it. That was yesterday. This is today. She's all that matters. Conflagration by Head Trip Parade Her lungs burned. She was certain the molecules she choked to breathe in were on actual fire, and she found herself powerless to extinguish them as her insides incinerated with every shaky breath. She closed her eyes and tried to reconcile the flaming weight bearing down on her, but it wouldn't stop. He wouldn't stop. He was invading her space, her sanity. Sure, he'd awkwardly stopped himself a good ten feet from her, but who was he to think that was okay? She hadn't asked for any of this. 
Beth Green hadn't asked to wake up cold and confused in a stale hospital bed, nor had she asked to almost get killed at least a dozen more times as she fought northward some six hundred-odd miles to track down the family she wasn't even sure was alive. She didn't ask for it to take nearly two years. She didn't ask for her scarred body to completely falter and slump into a heap of jello at the sight of him. They'd whisked him away, of course. She could vaguely make out Rick muttering something along the lines of let me talk to her first as he led him down the street. Perhaps it was exhaustion or maybe dehydration, but she'd struggled to stay conscious as her blue eyes followed his jarred gaze further and further away. Someone had gotten her a glass of water. Someone else had helped her to her feet. A third someone led her to a house where she was shown the shower and ordered to wait for Rick. She'd spoken to him, the overtly fine furnishings of the home tearing her between a long-forgotten comfort and devastating discomfort as she did so. He'd not wanted to bombard her, but she was thirsty for all the knowledge of everything she'd missed. It'd taken her frazzled head a while to put pieces of her fragile puzzle together on its own, and fuck it all, she wasn't going to let him off so easily. He told her about Glenn's brutal murder, that Maggie had given birth and was leading a neighboring community. He talked about the war she'd missed, but that war seemed childish when paired against the inferno burning in her chest she felt now, as Daryl Dixon planted his feet on the same porch as her. She'd come out here to process, to breathe, and he took that away from her. He took her ability to do either away from her. Her fingers unconsciously worked their way up to her shoulder-length hair and furiously twisted the damp waves a habit she'd picked up as a result of waking up with a shorn head and needing to feel herself returning to some semblance of normal as her locks regrew. She closed her eyes, sucking in a painfully searing breath. She wished she knew what to say, what to do. Fuck, she wished she knew what to feel. Once she'd added his piece, their piece, back into her puzzle, she wrestled every day with the notion that he was likely dead. Sure, she deemed him the last man standing. She'd had hope for him at one point that he would beat everything around him, but who was she kidding? She was living, fire-breathing proof that everything died, even Daryl Dixon. So she mourned him. She cried for him, even though she didn't cry anymore. She laid on the hard ground in the woods, sometimes mere feet from campmates and sometimes alone, and fucked herself to the point of tears as she imagined his rough hands sliding torturously up and down her quivering body. The soft clearing of his throat cut through her thoughts like a rabid animal's jaw, thrusting her back into this reality in which she had no control and minimal perception. She opened her eyes, blinking at him as she continued to twist her split ends around her calloused finger. He was just as strong as she remembered, though he looked probably ten years older than he was. His eyes were sunken into black holes, and his face seemed puffier. The scruff on his chin was nearly all gray. His hair was longer than she'd ever seen it hanging freely over his face. He looked aged, beaten. And yet, he'd carried his world on his back, and he was still boyish. So beautiful. She sighed. Are you ever going to say something? Trepidation coursed through her as she spoke, watching him shrug shyly and turn his gaze downward to his feet. Don't know what to say. She bit her lip anxiously and squinted out the glaring sunlight as it washed angrily over her sunburned arms. You could ask me how the hell I'm here. He shrugged again, lifting his eyes to hers. Don't matter how. She looked down to her lap, finally disentangling her finger from her hair to wipe her chewed lip when she tasted the ever-familiar metallic burst that accompanied blood. 
Daryl, Rick says he's taking you to Hilltop in the morning. She nodded slowly. I need to see Maggie. He smirked ever so slightly, ever so awkwardly, and brought his thumb up to his lip. Kid's pretty cute. She smirked back, sadly. I can't wait to meet him. Do you ever see them? I try to go up at least once a month, checking on things. She narrowed her focus on him. There was a sadness to his answer she couldn't decipher. He shrugged, turning his tired eyes to a smiling middle-aged couple walking down the street. Least I can do. Boy needs someone to look out for him. Maggie needs to know she ain't in it alone. Of course he did. Because he was Daryl. He was Daryl, and Maggie and baby Herschel were his family. They were their family. She couldn't fathom how she thought for two seconds that he'd be dead or anywhere other than taking care of them. She'd called it right the first time. He was going to be the last man standing. He just had to have something to stand for. She smiled. You coming with us tomorrow? He rolled his shoulders, a mumble the likes of which she thought she'd never hear again, growling sweetly past his lips. I don't know. Her smile grew, and she was so fucking sure she had not smiled so brightly since the two of them were together all those years ago. Don't, I don't know. He didn't smirk. He didn't smile. He didn't laugh. I know where else I'd be, Green. His face remained stoic, but his eyes were blazing. She'd been unsure how to react to him, what to say, or how to feel. Nerves had eaten her alive throughout this brief exchange, and yet this, his eyes burning into her with the same heat as was scorching her lungs only moments before, this gave her a renewed hope that maybe, maybe, they could get back to their space. She could tell him her story. He could tell her his. They could finally throw their arms around each other and hold on as if there wasn't going to be a tomorrow. They could rebuild their tumbled fortresses even stronger, and perhaps bigger than it was before. They could have each other. They could make it. They could live. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that. I certainly did. So, wrapping up, uh, uh, let me just go ahead and flag for your attention that on the next episode of this, which is going to be coming out, not this coming Monday, but the Monday after, I hope, I hope very much, um, you know, assuming that no, nothing disastrous occurs, uh, I am going to be talking to Nikita which you should all know is one of the most fantastic artists we have in this fandom. I absolutely adore her work. She's just unbelievably fucking good. I'm going to be talking to her on Sunday early afternoon, actually. So not a huge amount of time. Uh, but if you have any questions, if you have anything that you would like me to bring up with her, anything that you'd like us to cover topic-wise, please let me know between now and Sunday. Uh, and I'll try and slide that into the queue of stuff that I intend to use as talking points. So yeah, look for that. In the meantime, I'm going to go ahead and get this edited and get it posted, and then I'm going to go back and play some more of my ridiculously modded out Skyrim, which right now is the primary thing that is bringing me joy, and everybody should do the things that bring them joy. 
you should go and do that now. Hopefully this has been bringing you joy anyway. Thank you so much for listening, and I will hopefully speak to you soon.